We are now going to have our first Bible reading of the morning. Um, It's Isaiah chapter 38 on page 723. Isaiah 38, page 723. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial 10 steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of shale for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upwards. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you. As I do this day, the father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord 
Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? And we continue our reading with Isaiah chapter 39. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Claudia, for reading for us. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, as we go back many centuries and look at this ancient story, we thank you that you are the unchanging God. And we pray that as we come to your word now, you will show us more of yourself and more of what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in Isaiah, and this is the second talk on the four chapters that form a historical interlude amidst prophecies of different kinds. And taken together, these four chapters form a kind of pivot, moving the emphasis in the history of God's people onwards from the concerns of the kingdom of Judah and the nations surrounding them to their future state as exiles in Babylon. And as last week, the underlying issue for God's people is in whom will you put your trust? Now we need to say that this incident is a flashback. Chapters 38 and 39 actually precede in time chapters 36 and 37. They throw further light on the character of King Hezekiah, 
who we met last week defending Jerusalem against the Assyrian army. There is much debate on the detailed timing of this, but it's safe to say that the events that we're looking at this morning took place several years before that siege of Jerusalem. And we'll consider later the reasons why Isaiah wrote things in this sequence. Now this story in chapter 38 is clearly a major incident in the life of King Hezekiah. It's recounted actually elsewhere in the Old Testament as well, somewhat more logically I would have to say in 2 Kings chapter 20 and it's also referenced in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. So it's an important incident and we see first of all uh, a good king is saved from death. If you would keep chapter 38 open, page uh, 723, that would be helpful. Hezekiah was a good and godly king. When he came to the throne, he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem and restored its worship. He summoned the people to celebrate the Passover, and he even invited the remnant who were left in the northern kingdom of Israel to come down and celebrate it as well. He destroyed the high places and the Asherah poles of heathen worship. And he also destroyed the bronze snake that Moses had lifted up in the wilderness because it had become an object of idolatry. And he was successful in military operations against the Philistines. And he also carried out a major feat of engineering in diverting the water supply to help defend Jerusalem. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, we read, there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. But, we read, at the beginning of chapter 38, in those days, the Lord told Isaiah that Hezekiah was to die. Hezekiah was probably only aged around 39 at this point, and most importantly, he had no heir. And his response, as we have read, was despair and prayer and tears. And then the Lord comes to Isaiah and revokes the death sentence. And Isaiah, unlike certain other prophets, accepts when the Lord relents and he delivers God's stay of execution to Hezekiah. And he also gives promises of 15 more years of life and that Jerusalem itself will be kept safe from Assyria. And Hezekiah asks for a sign that this will happen. And the Lord moves the shadow on the adjacent steps backwards, up 10 steps. And the cure is a cake of figs, a somewhat strange cure, but it works. And both the cure and the request for a sign are added at the very end of chapter 38, almost as a kind of afterthought. And so in Isaiah, we have this story, somewhat abbreviated, to make space for Hezekiah's psalm of delivery from death, and we're going to be looking at that later on. Well, that's the basic story. I want us now to look, first of all, at the prayer that Hezekiah prays 
from the depths of despair. And this is in verses 2 and 3. Here is the prayer. Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And this is accompanied by bitter weeping. Just compare this prayer with the prayer we had last week. If you'd like to turn back a page and look at the very bottom of uh, chapter 37 and verse 16, Hezekiah prays in this way. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And he goes on in the same way, giving glory to God. And then we look at this prayer in chapter 38, verse 3. And basically, God's glory isn't there at all. It isn't a God-centered prayer. Lord, look at me. I've been a good bloke, is basically all it's saying. And what we have here is, frankly, not much of a prayer and very me-centered. But nevertheless, God hears the prayer and sees the tears. And he responds. And still today, God hears our prayers and sees our tears even when our prayers may be quite inadequate. And for Hezekiah, his response was that he spared his life. When the Lord responds to him, he talks of his prayer and tears. There's no mention of his good works. It is the prayer that the Lord is responding to. And I want just to ask, before we leave this prayer, was this frankly, the best prayer that Hezekiah could do in that circumstance. And I want to say that possibly it was, because there is a lesson to be learned from this, and that is that in extreme situations, it can be very difficult to pray. About 18 months ago, um, I had a condition that's now been resolved that occasionally left me with acute pain, unexpectedly. And one night, uh, the pain started, and for a whole night, I couldn't sleep. And what I found during that experience was that the combination of the pain and the lack of sleep meant that I was unable to pray. And this became a further source of distress right through the night. I was just uttering words and completely unable to pray coherently. And I don't think that this was a unique situation. Uh, Some of you may know um, Don Carson's classic book on Christian suffering, where he, having gone through and magisterially delivered his views on Christian suffering, at the very end, gives some practical advice. And here's one of the practical things that he says. We must pray for those who suffer. God himself is the one who comforts the downcast. He is the God of all comfort. 
In the deepest suffering, many find it almost impossible to pray. Should not the rest of us intercede for them? There have been times when I have seen the face of suffering transformed, permanently transformed in the face of believing prayer. If God is the God of all comfort, he finally must do it, often through human agents, sometimes not, but he must do it. So let us ask, remembering that he delights to give good things to his children. Now, we here are a praying fellowship. Praying for others is something that we engage in. I'm personally deeply grateful for those who have prayed for us in recent weeks in a time of crisis. And I continually thank the Lord for the answers to prayer that we've seen in the men's group to which I belong. In my humble opinion, we could do even better if we had a means of knowing needs across the fellowship as a whole, beyond our small groups, and thus widening a vital ministry. But vital ministry it is. When people are going through the storm, it is absolutely crucial that we, as fellow Christians, support them in intercession. And I think that's one of the oblique messages that comes out of Hezekiah's rather pathetic prayer here. Now I want to move on and to look at what um, is called here the writing of Hezekiah. Most people regard it as a kind of psalm as he moves from despair to praise. You might expect that after such a deliverance, uh, this would be a psalm overflowing with praise. Well, it isn't until the very end. But Hezekiah does identify some positive outcomes from it, from his experience, and some of those may be helpful to us as we emerge from difficult experiences that we face. Now, I have to say up front that at this time in Jewish thought, there was no real emphasis on life after death and resurrection. The only direct Old Testament references are isolated verses in Isaiah and Daniel and possibly in Hosea. Later on, of course, by about the second century BC, Jewish views of life after death had changed, and as we know, by the time of the Gospels, we find a large body of people, including the Pharisees, who believed strongly in the resurrection of the dead. But at Hezekiah's time, this was just not an emphasis at all. He has no concept, no knowledge of the concept of resurrection, and hence, when he begins this writing, this psalm, he focuses on death itself. And the first four verses, we will see, are pretty despairing. In them, Hezekiah reflects on the bleakness of death. Uh, the afterlife um, was called Sheol in those days. And there, there is no relationship between God and men. Verse 11, death is to be feared. It's a place of disembodied shades. And the only things flourishing are worms and maggots. Hezekiah, as he contemplates this, most certainly does not burst forth into a chorus of almost home, that cliche-written dirge that we sometimes sing here. He does not want to be there. But he does get one thing right, which is that death is ordained by God. And he has these pictures 
of a shepherd's tent being moved on when the pasture is exhausted, and of a weaver's pattern being cut off when it's complete. And twice, he says, you bring me to an end. It is God's doing, and he feels powerless. The Lord acts like a lion, verse 13, while he chirps and moans ineffectually. So as we look at this view of death, we see, first of all, a bleak and fatalistic view that is, unfortunately, very similar to many modern views of death. Many people out there think death is the end. If you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe that is your view, that there is nothing beyond. I recently went to a funeral that turned out to be a humanist funeral. I'd never been to one before. The person running it called herself a celebrant, but frankly, there wasn't much to celebrate. Of course, there were the eulogies for the chap who had died, but beyond that, as we filed out, it was just a sense of bleakness and no hope, whatever. But looking also at the way that Hezekiah looks at death, as we've said, the one thing he gets right is that God is in control of it. You bring me to an end, he says twice, in an almost accusatory, negative fashion. But for the Christian, the fact that it is God who brings us to an end is a profoundly reassuring statement. Our times are in the Lord's hands until he comes to us and fulfills the promise that where I am, you may be also. So God's control of death for us is a source of hope and of rejoicing. Now we're going to move on through some rather dense verses in uh, 15 onwards. And uh, we can see here that the, this near-death experience has affected him spiritually, largely in a positive way. In verse uh, 15 he says, um, I will walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. What does that mean? Well, I think if we look at Hezekiah as a great spiritual leader and as a great king, it may mean that he's just going to slow down his pace a bit and do that good leadership thing of looking over your shoulder to make sure that people are following behind you. If we look at his history, we see that the people who he summoned to celebrate the Passover and to worship in the temple went back to their old ways as soon as his son took over and they went back to pagan worship. Perhaps he needs to walk more slowly to put time into those who are following him. Or perhaps we just take this at face value and that his walk is humbler and simpler, that he is going to focus on the simple things of life. Many of you will know and have benefited from the ministry and writings of Tim Keller in New York. And Tim Keller has been faced with a, a diagnosis of cancer. Uh, and he wrote an essay, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. It's deeply moving and very, very honest. But as he comes to the end, he says these words. 
As God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully, and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded, that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. And maybe as we emerge from situations of trauma and difficulty and pain, focusing on the simple things of life is not a bad area to concentrate on. Moving on in verse 17, he recognizes that this bitterness was for his own welfare and that he learnt from the experience. And here he seems to be reiterating those famous verses in Hebrews. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been transformed by it. So he's learning, and also importantly, he says in verse 17, you have cast all my sins behind your back. He had guilt about dying with unforgiven sin, and he sees that this has been at least temporarily removed in his deliverance. And then finally, we get in verses 19 and 20 to thanksgiving and praise for God's faithfulness and for his salvation. He looks forward to joining in corporate worship and praise in God's house in verse 20. And that's important because in times of trouble, our world can shrink. And as we come out of the trouble, it's important to emerge with praise and a sense of God's greatness and goodness. Now, those are very dense verses, and I'm just going to try and summarize Hezekiah's spiritual journey. If we could um, have a slide, please. He starts in despair and almost fighting against God. But he then accepts that God's hand is in events. He makes changes to his lifestyle or determines to do so. He's keen to learn the benefits of what he's gone through and what they should mean to him and how they should change him. And he seeks forgiveness. And this in turn results in thanksgiving and praise, which he shares with God's people. Now, um, it's not a standard template for all of the problems of life, uh, but as we have seen, this experience that he has gone through may have some lessons for us that are useful and helpful as we go through trials and emerge from them. So overall, this psalm, this writing, is a bit of a mixture of ideas. Um, and in the famous words of Sir Humphrey Appleby, it leaves some important questions unanswered. In particular, the state of those who have died, their future, and the continuing need for forgiveness of sin. And Isaiah had spoken earlier, as we know, of one who was to come and would bring answers to these. But Hezekiah 
for all of his virtues and his spirituality lacks answers to these key questions. The one who would bring those answers is still to come. Now let's move into chapter 39. The pace changes here. We have the shadow of Babylon and the foreshadowing of Jesus. After Hezekiah's recovery, envoys arrived from Babylon to visit him. Their stated purpose was to congratulate him on his recovery, and they almost certainly had other motives as well. Merodach Baladan had been at war with Assyria himself, and he saw Judah's resistance to Assyria as a potential diversion. If sm this small country uh, down there to the west could be encouraged to continue its resistance to Assyria, then as a minimum, it would tie up a lot of Assyrian troops who could not go to Babylon. Hezekiah, as we read, welcomed them gladly and showed them everything. We read elsewhere, if we look across to two kings, that at a later time, Hezekiah sent all the gold and silver from Jerusalem to Sennacherib as a tribute to try and buy him off. But at this point in time, it was all there and it was all visible to the people from Babylon. And we also read in two chronicles that Hezekiah was proud. And certainly pride seems to have been there when he is flattered by the response of this Premier League power from Babylon uh, coming to his League Two statelet in Judah. And Isaiah's questioning shows his displeasure at the way that Hezekiah has handled this visit. And then Isaiah gives a devastating prophecy. Everything will be carried off to Babylon, verse 6. This includes Hezekiah's descendants, who will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon, thus threatening the continuation of the royal line. And we know from history that all of this is going to happen in about a hundred years' time, just over a hundred years' time from then. And if we look at verse 8, Hezekiah's response is controversial. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Should we see that as a positive comment or a negative comment? Is he graciously accepting the word of the Lord, or is his main emotion one of relief that this won't happen on his watch? We know that since these events preceded those of previous chapters, there's not going to be any peace and security. Um, a lot of Assyrians are going to rock up outside Jerusalem fairly soon. And as a king in the line of David, the prospect of that line being discontinued because his descendants would be in Babylon, that should have appalled him. And on balance, I think our judgment here must be negative of his comments. And this would be consistent with the view that we find in Chronicles that Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud, although he did at some stage later repent of this pride. So when it came to the test with the envoys from Babylon, Hezekiah's trust in the Lord was shown to be lacking. 
Remember the theme of last week, in whom do you put your trust? He was putting his trust in these people who had impressed him so much, rather than in the Lord. And within Isaiah's unfolding narrative, we are now just going to come back to this original question. Why is it this way round? Well, it's round, this way round for theological reasons. Isaiah has been seeking up to this point to encourage the people of Judah to put their trust in the Lord. He has spoken of one who will come to deliver them, a king from the line of David, a root of Jesse, on whom the spirit of the Lord will rest, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So someone great was to come, and as we have seen, Hezekiah, for all his piety, for all his achievements, could really not take things any further in terms of those vital questions that remained to be solved. God's people still need one in whom they can put their trust. And the mention of Babylon and the prophecy of exile leads on in Isaiah's book to the following chapters of prophecy in chapters 40 to 55. And those chapters are addressed prophetically to God's people in exile in Babylon. And as the book moves into chapter 40 onwards, there is a message of comfort for God's people and an emergence of the figure of a servant who will bring forth justice, blessing, and salvation for the people of Israel and all nations. And above all, this servant will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in this foreshadowing of Jesus, we see the solution not only to the waywardness of the kings of the people of Judah and Israel, but to the condition of the whole human race. Like Hezekiah, whatever our achievements, whatever our spirituality, we are flawed people who face eternal condemnation unless we put our trust in the death of Jesus in our place. Hezekiah had no concept of life after death, but the resurrection of Jesus confirms in Isaiah's words that because of it, many may be accounted righteous. Or as Jesus himself put it very succinctly, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And this means that in total contrast to Hezekiah, when we come in repentance and faith to Jesus, there is no fear of death. There is no guilt of unforgiven sin. There is the certain hope of the presence of Jesus at death and a future resurrection body for eternity. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ.